Obviously, when you walk in here and you see the communion table, you know we're observing the Lord's table. And uh, we want to uh, prepare our hearts for that. And I've prepared a message, hopefully that will do that. And I've entitled it, Questions We Must Ask at the Lord's Table. Questions that we must ask at the Lord's Table. And there are two. The first one is a question of loyalty. The second one is a question of love. Question of loyalty and a question of love. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about loyalty, but I read the story. I'd heard it before, but I never really read the story of a man named Hiru Onada. He was drafted in the Japanese army during World War II, actually at the very end of World War II, and he was taught guerrilla warfare. On December 26, 1944, really just about six months before the war was over, he was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines. A few months later, on February 28, 1945, the Americans landed on Lubang as well. Onada, his only order from his commanding officer was not to die by his own hands. In other words, no matter how bad it gets, do not commit suicide. When the Japanese forces were quickly taken out by the American forces after he arrived, Onada and three fellow soldiers hid in the trees and in the mountains. They survived on any food they could forage. In October of 1945, Onada and the other soldiers received leaflets telling them that the war had ended. Of course, it had ended several months earlier. They received these leaflets telling that the war was ended and they were free to go home. They thought it was a trick by the Allied forces. So they continued their guerrilla attacks. In 1952, this is seven years after the war was over, in 1952, more letters were sent from an aircraft telling them to come home. Again, they assumed it was a trap. The men continued fighting until one by one, they were either killed or they surrendered after 1972, Onada was alone. The Japanese eventually sent a search party, but they couldn't find Onada because he had pretty successful at hiding out for the last 30 years. Eventually, on February 20th, 1974, Onada was found by a Japanese student. Even after this, Onada refused to surrender. He thought the war was still going on and he was going to be loyal to his superiors. It was only after his commanding officer heard about Onada and flew to Luang that he believed the war was genuinely over and he surrendered. Onada killed about 30 people during his fighting as a guerrilla Japanese soldier on the island there in the Philippines, but he was pardoned by the Philippine president. Onada received pay for his work for the last 30 years when he came back to Japan and he was literally seen as a hero. Not because he was dense and didn't want to believe that the war was over, but because of his loyalty. Now, in my mind, that's an extreme picture of loyalty. That's loyalty to the extreme. But Jesus asked us to be loyal to him. And part of taking communion is really like a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of allegiance of our loyalty to Christ. That live or die we're going to be true to him. So first, a question of loyalty. Matthew 26, let me read to you, if you'll follow along, starting at verse 17. It says, 
Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city, this is Jerusalem, a certain man and find a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, and now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You won't be loyal to me. You'll be the opposite of loyalty. You'll betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? They were wondering if they were going to be the one. Lord, is it I? Verse 23, and he answered and he said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, you have said it. Notice with me about the question of loyalty. First, preparation. These verses tell us a little bit about the preparation. The disciples were prepping for what we know was the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the Passover meal specifically. And they were out by Jesus' direction buying bread. Remember, they would break bread, and they would buy lamb, and they would buy herbs and they would buy wine and they had to secure the room so they were preparing everything for what was going to be jesus's last passover and by the way our lord's table as you understand is a transition from the passover jesus elevates two elements from the passover and makes them the lord's table or our communion service so this was the most important of all the jewish holidays and they had to get ready for every Jewish family, every Orthodox Jewish family prepared all that they could for the Passover meal, which transitions for us. When we come to the Lord's table, we should be prepared as well. We prepare our hearts. We prepare our minds because we're getting ready to commune with God in one of the most intimate ways that we find in the New Testament here at the Lord's table. Over the years, probably all of us have entertained people. My wife and I, Starry and I, have entertained many people in our home, overnight guests, weekend guests, that kind of thing. We've had missionaries many, many times. We've had preachers many times that were in town preaching here at our church. We've had Bible college presidents. We've had seminary presidents that have stayed in our home. And I can tell you what happens. We vacuum. We dust. We make sure the dishes are done. I cut the grass. We put new sheets on the bed. We get their special towels out, the ones that have the embroidered H on there, so they know that they're staying at the Heinz household. The embroidered H on there, and we put those towels out. We never use them any other time. We do everything we can to prepare the house for these special guests. You know, at minimum, at very minimum, hospitality is this, it's providing a clean, comfortable, and inviting environment. That's what hospitality is, a clean, comfortable, inviting environment. And in a sense, that's exactly what we're doing here at communion. 
we're dusting, we're vacuuming, we're cleaning up, we're doing all that we can so we're presentable to the Lord because we're saying, Lord, come into my heart, dwell supremely, take over my life. If there's anything in here that needs to be swept away, I'll clean it up, I'll push it out because I want you to feel comfortable in the throne room of my heart. That's what we're saying. You know, this is wedding season. A lot of folks get married in June, July, August, wedding season. And I've observed a lot of people really get prepped for for wedding. Weddings are often preceded by diets, waxing, facials, and that's just the men. (laughs) The girls go way overboard. They do. Why? Because they want to look their absolute best for their lover, for their new partner, for their spouse. They want to look their absolute best. And God invites us to prepare for this meal. You know, you've heard the saying, God says to us, come as you are. And that's true. For all of us who are saved with a pile of sin in our life, God says, and he reaches out to us and he says, come as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up to get saved. You don't have to make sure that you're living like a Christian before you get saved. God says, come as you are. But he never says, stay as you are. After we get saved, we don't stay as we are. We don't stay in those sins. We don't live in that lifestyle. We get sanctified. We grow in grace. We change. He says, come as you are. He doesn't say, stay as you are. Change takes place because the Bible says, be ye holy even as I am holy. It's a good verse to keep in mind as we come to the Lord's table. By the way, notice, look at verse 18 in your Bible. And it says, he said to his disciples, go into the city to a certain man. They didn't know who they were looking for. He didn't give them a name. Go to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, the rabbi says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Jesus will come into the heart and home of everyone who permits him. So if you're here today without Jesus Christ on this Independence Day weekend, and you haven't been independent from your sin. You haven't been freed, delivered from your sin. Jesus wants to come into your heart and into your home, but you have to invite him. Just as this man had to invite them. You know that we have three chairs down here and two of us serve communion. The middle chair, of course, represents the Lord's presence with us. This is the Lord's table. We're communing with the Lord And he invites us to commune with him. But we have to open our heart. And there's preparatory work. So I see, first of all, there's preparation, verses 17 through 24. And then second, I see there's examination. That's found in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, as you well know. But there's examination in this passage, verses 21 through 25 that we read. Now, you've probably seen the picture, the artist's rendering by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. And in that painting, they're all sitting at one long table, and they're all sitting on one side. Of course, that's so we can see their faces. And they're all sitting there. Jesus is in the middle. John's on one side, etc. 
But that's not how they celebrated the Passover. That's not how they celebrated this last meal. You probably know that as well. They didn't sit at a table. They would recline. They would recline on the floor. They'd have something, what we would call like a lazy Susan. You know, a, a low table that could even rotate around. They would generally, because it was assumed that people were right-handed and almost everybody was, if somebody tried to be left-handed, they would train them to be right-handed. They would recline with their feet behind them, their face towards the table, and they would recline on a pillow, sometimes several pillows. They would recline with their left elbow on the pillow, and then they would eat with their right hand. So their feet were behind them. That's why when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he worked his way around. They would take their sandals off. It was a dirty, dusty place, dry place in, in that part of the world. And they would take their sandals off. And usually the lowest, the most menial of slaves would do that. Just before this meal, what does Jesus do? He girds himself with a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And he tells them, be a servant like I am. If you want to be great, be a servant. That's what he's telling them. But now they're reclining on their left elbow, the meal is prepared, and Jesus is there with his disciples. John's on his right because he whispers in his ear. Judas is on his left. So John and Judas are on either side of Christ. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, gives the sop. Most of us understand what that is. It was the, the end of the bread loaf with all the crust. And he would dip it in the gravy, the juice, the odd juice, as we say. The host would dip it in the odd juice, and he would give it to the honored friend. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus takes the end of the loaf, he dips it in the sop, and he gives it to Judas. It was a, it was a gesture of friendship to an honored guest, we would say, and he gives it to Judas in this very final hour. Jesus' gesture was one of mercy. That's what this was. Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place, but this was a gesture of mercy. Jesus was inviting Judas to reconsider his decision. He had already met with the high priest. He had already met with the Jewish leader. He was going to get paid 30 pieces of silver for betraying Christ. And Jesus was appealing to him with this act to reconsider what he was about to do, this act of treachery. That's what he's doing. He's providing him an opportunity to repent. I can't read that without thinking what a long-suffering Lord we have. Amen? We have a long-suffering Lord who is merciful and enduring and gracious. And he's waiting for us to repent. He's waiting for us to ask for forgiveness. He's waiting for us to change our direction. Jesus pursued Judas till the very final hour. God's foreknowledge... Foreknowledge is the Bible term, means to know ahead of time. Foreknowledge tell, tells God who is going to be saved. But God's foreknowledge never negates man's responsibility. You follow me? 
even though God knew, even though Jesus knew everything about Judas's betrayal, he was appealing to him. And God's foreknowledge didn't make Judas do it. He was appealing to him in mercy to repent. So God's foreknowledge never negates man's responsibility. Well, we are responsible to God. God knows how we're going to respond, but we're responsible to God. And he's appealing to Judas to repent. And by the way, he appeals to us all the time in his long-suffering mercy to turn from our sin, to confess our sin, and to get in perfect fellowship with him, even though it may be only short-lived. We all know we'll sin again. The disciples were so struck by what he said that one of you are going to betray me tonight. You're going to turn me over to our enemies. They were so struck by that. Every one of them was saying, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it it me? And by the way, self-examination. That's what they were doing. Self-examination can be very valuable. And this is a time of self-examination. Self-examination is good. Why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who doesn't know that? We do self-examination because we know our heart. And more than that, God knows our heart. We do self-examination because we know how easily we're swayed, how quickly we turn away from the Lord, how easy it is for us to deny him when we should be loyal to him. I can't help but think And don't misunderstand me, but probably every preacher in America has thought these very same things. During COVID, because we've talked about it, I'm in a monthly prayer group with a whole bunch of pastors here on the front range. But during COVID, it made us realize, made many of us realize, not just preachers, but probably you as well, realize how little it took to cause some people, how little it took to cause some people to set aside the commandment forsake not the assembling of yourselves together it took just a little command from a little guy named Fauci who's been wrong on just about everything really to cause some people say I'm not going back to church when God says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together who are we going to obey the CDC where 60% of them have not taken the vaccine Are we going to obey them or are we going to obey God? Which makes you wonder how easy it's going to be for the Antichrist to come along and people will just shut down and obey him and deny the Lord. Never allow yourself to get in the habit of avoiding the Holy Spirit's soul-searching scrutiny. I know, I've been a pastor for a long time, been here for 37, August starts 38 years. I know some people don't like to come to the Lord's table because it's a time where the spotlight of the Holy Spirit is turned on the soul of every person and we ask God to, we invite God to show us where there's sin. Some people don't like to do that that soul-searching scrutiny. It's uncomfortable for them. Let me give you a line here that I hope you'll remember. Conviction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction is God's intended pain in my soul to bring about healing in my spiritual life. You follow me? Conviction 
of the Holy Spirit in my soul is God's intended pain. Just like a doctor sometimes causes pain to heal a person. It's God's intended pain to bring about healing in my spiritual life. So it may hurt a little bit, but it's bringing about healing. It's bringing about what we need in our spiritual life. Never allow yourself to get out of the habit of avoiding the Holy Spirit's soul-searching scrutiny. First is a question of loyalty. We see that illustrated in Judas, a negative illustration. A question of loyalty. Second, a question of love. By the way, you've seen in our bulletin, we're, I'm starting a new series on Sunday morning on 2 Corinthians. And Sunday night, we're starting a new series on people with passion who lived by their convictions and how the Word of God came into their life and changed them. People like John Wycliffe, who translated the first English Bible, burned at the stake. Amy Carmichael, Martin Luther, just a variety of great Christians and how the Word of God changed them. And they stood for God and they changed the course of history. One of those men was Martin Luther. Many of you know the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. He was an Augustinian monk. I was Catholic for the first 20 years of my life. He was an Augustinian monk, very rigid. He studied law, then became a priest, became a monk, and he was devout. He was extremely disciplined as a monk. But while he was at Erfurt, Germany, small town, Erfurt, Germany, he was in the library, pretty much the Catholic Church owned the libraries, and most people weren't readers, couldn't read, but the priests certainly could. They read Latin, they would read their own language, but he was in the library there, Erfurt, and he was reading the Bible. Very few people had access to it, but he was reading Romans, and then he read Galatians. You couldn't read two better books to get converted from, because the book of Romans is the magnum opus it is Paul's theological treatise on salvation by grace. And Martin Luther had been to Rome and he'd crawled up the steps on his knees as penance trying to earn his salvation. And he came away with bloody knees but no peace. And he was reading the book of Romans when he saw that if we repent of our sins and by grace ask God to save us, he'll save us. And Martin Luther was saved as a Catholic priest. And in 1517, after studying his Bible, he began to have a following, and he nailed to the castle church doors in Wittenberg his famous 95 theses, which were remonstrances against the Catholic Church and their unbiblical teaching and practices. He was in defiance, really, of all of Europe, because the Pope and the clergy ruled over the king's. They were vassals to the Pope. So by doing that bold act, he was basically now a man who had to go into hiding. He was considered a rebel against God and against his country. After nailing the 95 theses to the chapel doors, basically stating his defiance to the false teaching of the Catholic Church, the Reformation started. The Reformation started. Martin Luther was the star, we would say the morning star, as he's sometimes called, of the European Reformation. 
And Luther became a hunted man. If you read his life story, he was a hunted man, went from place to place being chased and tracked. He soon was found himself surrounded. He was a powerful preacher. Once he got saved, he became a powerful preacher. And he preached to his old clergy friend. So here's all these Catholic priests getting converted. Many of them stayed in his home and stayed with him and helped him escape as he was chased, as he translated the Bible into German. So all these Catholic priests were getting saved. And then he realized there are nunneries all over full of women who've also bought into this false doctrine, believing that you're a servant handmaid of the Lord and you dedicate yourself to the Lord and that gets you salvation. So he began to deliver the nuns from the nunnery. They would take grain and other supplies into the nunnery and he had men that would put a handful of nuns every time they came in under the tarps and in the barrels and haul them out and then he would marry them to the priest. (laughs) Pretty good for a priest, a former priest. So he was doing all these marriages of nuns and priests. One day he rescued a woman named Katerina von Bora. She went into the nunnery when she was five years old. That was very common. Left her home, went into the nunnery. She had heard the gospel that was being now circulated. It was getting legs and running through all all Europe through the Reformation. She also was carted off in one of those carts under the tarp. As she saw him performing all these marriages, he tried to hook her up with a former priest, and she wouldn't have none of it. She wanted Martin Luther. So Kate married Martin Luther. Martin Luther married Kate, and it was a match made in heaven. She was exactly what he needed. He was a man of strong temperament, and so was she. She ran the farm. They often had many, many students with them. They took in people who were exiled. They had six children of their own. It was a tremendous relationship. She loved and assisted Luther through the darkest days of Rome's attack. And if you could open Martin Luther's Bible, and it's extant, it's available. If you would open to the book of Romans, he wrote in the margin this. This is what he wrote in Romans. This is my beloved Kate. She brought to daily life the unconditional love that the gospel brought to my spiritual life. He said, the unconditional love that I got from God that changed me is the same kind of love that I experienced on the human level from my wife. What a tribute. What a tribute to his wife. When we really love someone, we seek to please them. Now think about that for a moment. Most of us are married here today. When we really love someone, we seek to please them. Maybe you've heard me say that when we cease trying to please our spouse, it's the beginning of marital troubles. We say, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm not going to go out of my way to do that. When we seek to please our spouse, it's the beginning of marital troubles. Because when we really love someone, we want to please them. And and when we really love the Lord, we want to please him. Matter of fact, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
If we really love the Lord, we want to please him. You know what I found? It's easy to love someone who makes regular sacrifices on your behalf. If I'm making regular sacrifices on behalf of my wife, Starry, she finds it very easy to love me because she knows he sacrifices for me. He gives his all for me. He does his best for me. And you know what? How could we not love the Lord? After all he sacrificed for us, it's very easy to love the Lord when we understand how much he's done for us. So let's talk a little bit about those following verses, 26 through 30. I don't think I read them. This is the question of love that says in verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives where he was arrested. A question of loyalty, we've talked about that. Preparation, examination. A question of love. First of all, I see the elements here in verses 26 through 28. I think I said earlier, out of all the elements that were used in the Passover meal that have been going on now for over 2,000 years, or close to 2,000 years, 1,500 years would be more exact. At all the, this Passover meal that had been practiced by the Jews every year at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, out of all the elements, the bitter herbs to remind them of their slavery in Egypt, the lamb, picturing the lamb of God, the wine, the bread, all of that, out of all the meal that is still used by Jews in the Passover meal, Jesus takes two of them, the bread and the cup, the bread and the wine, and he elevates them and he, and he thrusts them into the New Testament, a part of the new covenant. The Passover was part of the old covenant that God had with the Jew. This meal is part of the new covenant that God has with his church, New Testament believers. Of course, Jesus elevated these two, the bread picturing his broken body. They had a loaf of bread and they would tear it off and distribute it. The bread represented his broken body. The wine, of course, naturally because of its color and the fact that it's a liquid, pictures his shed blood, which washes away sin. This is a memorial with a message. If you go to Washington, D.C., you'll see a number of memorials. I remember going to the Korean Memorial and the World War II Memorial. And one of the most moving ones was the Vietnam Wall, the Vietnam Memorial with all of those names. And it just goes on. That's a memorial with a message. You read those names and you say, all of these men died for the cause of freedom in Southeast Asia to keep communism from spreading. It's a memorial with a message, and when we observe this memorial, it has a message that Jesus died for our sins, and now we should live for him, for his great pardon, his great deliverance. 
This is the new covenant. And it's very different from the old covenant. The old covenant we call the law. Under the old covenant, Moses was given the Ten Commandments, and then subsequently 613 other commands came down from God. So the old covenant was about the law, and it really taught men how badly they needed a Savior, and that pointed to the sacrificial system, which ultimately pointed to the perfect sacrifice that would come someday. So they looked forward to it, we looked back towards it, both by faith. The old covenant was, has to do with the law. The new covenant that he instituted at this time was grace. Covenant of grace. They were saved by what he did on the cross and by his vicarious atonement. And he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no wiping away of sin. There's no cleansing from sin. Without the shedding of blood, you can't have your sins removed. Jesus could have been choked to death. He could have been hung. He could have been shot. But he had to die a bloody death. He had to die with his blood pouring out. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. He had to die a bloody death. And this testament, this a covenant is like a testament where he had the New Testament. And it's sealed by his blood. When someone dies, that testament that he wrote, that last will and testament goes into effect. When Jesus died, his new covenant, the new testament goes into effect. So we see the elements. And I say we see the emotions in verses 29 through 30. Here the disciples are saying goodbye to the Savior. I don't think they really got it, though. I don't think they really understood it. He says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until my father's kingdom. Judas has already departed. He's already settling the deal and telling them where to find Jesus. Here are the disciples at the very apex of human history. Here they are at the apex of human history, the fulfillment of so many biblical prophecies, so many mysteries that were never really understood, but now it's fulfilled right at this moment. And they didn't get it. They really didn't understand it. Jesus, the God-man, was going to die on the cross in behalf of his own. That's why we call it vicarious atonement, someone taking the place of another. These disciples didn't fully understand what was taking place. But I have to ask, do you? Do you understand what took place that 2,000 years ago in your behalf? Do you understand that Jesus suffered the wrath of God, the penalty for our sin, the torment of hell, so you wouldn't have to go there. And have you, by faith, taken that gift, that free gift of salvation that comes to us only by grace, not by work, but by grace, through faith, and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you haven't, then you're not prepared to die. You're not even prepared to live. And if you haven't, there's no better time, no better place than today and now at this church service for you to accept Christ as your sin substitute. Jesus was saying goodbye to his disciples. They didn't quite get it, but he was saying goodbye to them. He says, I'll drink again the fruit of the vine in the new kingdom, my father's kingdom. I don't think any of us like goodbyes. Well, we've all had to say them. It was Thursday night. Wally's family called me and said, 
while he's dying. Would you come over and meet with the family, pray with Wally? He might be clear for a few moments. Wally is the man that landscaped our, our entire property here. The trees, the grass, the bushes. Donated a lot of it. Sabelle Landscaping, one of the biggest landscapers in Denver, he got saved in our church. He was 70 when he got saved. 70. He was a Golden Gloves boxer. He was an Italian. He was a firefighter. Got tore his back up in an accident. Could never be a part of the fire department any longer. Always wore back braces his entire life. Got hurt in his 20s. Got saved in our church. I went over to see Wally probably the last time I'll see him. He's not eating. He's not drinking. Probably going to die. The hospice nurse was there. CNA was there. Probably going to die in a few hours. I said goodbye to Wally. Thank him for all his work, his donation. Sometimes we get tired of saying goodbye. Jesus was saying goodbye. But it wasn't a final goodbye. He says, I'll see you again. I'll see you in my Father's kingdom. I'll see you after the resurrection. And he did. There's an emotional mix. There's a milieu of emotions in this scripture text. The sorrow about Jesus' impending death, but the joy that's bursting from the purchase, the final completion of salvation that's been anticipated since the Garden of Eden. So there's a, a mix of emotions, sorrow and joy. I don't think the disciples got it. I really don't. And you can see that as you read through the New Testament. They finally did get it, obviously. But we understand the disciples' loyalty was shaky. Peter denied him. <laughs> Talk about lack of loyalty. Peter denied him. An hour of testing. The disciples' loyalty was shaky. Their love was questionable. We're talking about when we come to the Lord's table, it's a time where we look at our loyalty and our love. Their loyalty was shaky. Their love was very questionable. But not God's. Not Jesus's. His loyalty. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're a child of God, God promises he will never leave you or forsake you. His loyalty is there. And his love you can't describe his love. He only brings into our life that which is for our best spiritual outcome. Not our comfort, but our spiritual outcome. Romans 8, 28. God gave his best. We don't question his loyalty. We don't question his love. So our response, our response when we read this story, our response when we come to the Lord's table should be, Lord, I see what you've done for me. I see all that you've done for me. I pledge my life. I pledge my loyalty. I pledge my love to you. It will falter. I will fall. I will embarrass myself in you, but I pledge it to you anew and afresh. That's what we're doing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for so many passages of Scripture that prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's table. Lord, we want to be what you want us to be. We can't do that without your grace because grace 
is the forgiveness that comes to a sinner, but it's the divine enablement. It's undeserved favor to the sinner. It's divine enablement for the saint. And we need your grace. So as we confess our sin and as we examine our heart, we ask that the Holy Spirit would have free reign. And then as we take of these elements, we're reminded of your great sacrifice and what you've done for us. And we pledge ourselves back to you in Jesus' name, amen.